A lot of cool places on the moon that we've never been. What's the difference between the near side and the far side? Where would be a good spot for astronauts to camp out? Let's talk to an expert. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. This season is all about the moon. With me today is Dr. Steve Mackwell. You know, when I first met Steve, he was the director of the Lunar and Planetary Institute. And now he is at the American Institute of Physics as the deputy executive officer. And I'm real excited to talk to him today. He's one of the top planetary scientists in the world. Welcome, Steve. Oh, I enjoy being here. So this is a perfect opportunity, you know, with the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 to be talking about the moon and what happened in the past, but, you know, really take a look at what we want to do in the future. So let me start out talking about how the Apollo mission planners chose where to go on the moon. Well, Jim, as you know, the technology back there wasn't what it is today. And uh, one of the key criteria was safety and landing uh, landing in a nice flat spot with no big rocks. Yeah, um, I think that was probably number one. Yeah. <laughs> number, number one goal. <laughs> yeah, and, and we didn't have great imagery of the moon back then, so we didn't know how big the rocks were. And Apollo 11 had some challenges actually finding a place to land safely. But uh, safety was a key criteria. Also, you know, you had to be on the near side because communications back to Earth was critical. Yeah, couldn't go to the far side. Can't go to that side that we can't communicate with. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So um, all that changed. You know, Apollo uh, 11... 12 landed, 13 had to come home, didn't didn't make it to the surface of the moon. You know, it was a very famous mission everyone knows about, of course. And then we went on to 14, 15, 16, and 17. So a really great set of six fabulous Apollo missions. And they brought back some material. You know, they brought back about 850 pounds of lunar samples. So what are some of the things these lunar samples have told us? Oh, we learned a lot about not just the moon, but also the Earth and, uh, and the inner solar system. And in fact, uh, we even learned about how the early solar system developed from those samples. Um, one of the key things we learned is because the moon doesn't have the kind of erosional history and everything that we see here on Earth is the, the surface of the moon is relatively pristine. So we have the history of bombardment of impact cratering on the surface of the moon that goes back right to the earliest times of the solar system. And we've used that information to calibrate the surface ages of Mars, of Mercury, of other planetary bodies in the solar system. So that was a really critical piece because, you know, we couldn't unravel the history of our solar system without the information we got from the samples we brought back from the moon. We also kind of learned a lot about how the, the moon evolved over time uh, and volcanism on the moon. You know, there's a lot of information in the samples that we brought back, even though they were from a relatively limited area on the surface. You know, having those samples in our hands allowed us to date them. And some of the key to that is really looking at, at uh, uh, samples that we brought back from the moon. So how old is the Earth and the moon? Uh, about 4.6 billion years. It's, uh, wow. We've been around a while. Yeah, that's right. You know, what's really neat that, uh, that, that just happened recently is that we brought back a rock from Apollo that actually has a unique connection to Earth. You remember what that was? Oh, yeah. There was a lot of hype about that. That was the that was the first time we've 
actually seen something that could represent a piece of the Earth uh, brought back in the samples from the moon. Wow. That does, we, could, we could have more in the collections. Uh, but, you know, it's still, um, you know, with the samples that we brought back, we've got uh, a lot of very careful, detailed science that we do on them. And we're going to see. Uh, looking at that sample in more detail, uh, there's some questions about whether it's truly lunar material or Earth material. Uh, we're going to see. What makes it hard to tease that out, of course, is that Earth rock is embedded in other rocks mm -hmm. uh, that are lunar probably in origin. Yeah. And, and and that's called a breccia and they're from the from the impacts that then melt these rocks together. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, now that we've recognized one, uh, that's going to be important as we look over those samples to see if we can find some more. So why is it important that we find rocks from Earth that have made their way to the moon? Well, you know, logically speaking, uh, you'd expect to find some Earth rocks on the moon. And just because of the proximity and because, you know, from the impact history, particularly early on in the history of the solar system, we know there was a lot of material that was knocked off the surfaces of planetary bodies, including the Earth and Moon. And the Earth, Moon is so close that you would have expected some of these materials to land on the Moon. After all, in our collections that we've got at uh, Johnson Space Center, we have samples of Mars pieces of rock that was knocked off the surface of Mars and eventually landed on the surface of our planet. So this rock we've dated, and, and it is about four billion years old. So the oldest Earth rock we have found is the one we brought back from the moon. Mm -hmm. That's really mind-boggling. Yeah, it's, it's really quite incredible. And the thing about that, too, is the fact that we have very, very little of the early history of the Earth recorded from any materials we have on Earth. So in theory, at least, the rocks we get back from another planetary surface could tell us about the very earliest history of our own planet that we cannot get from anything here. And that's because of our plate tectonics and the way our surface is still evolving. It's kind of turning over. Mm -hmm. And so some of the oldest stuff we find here on Earth is only about 3.6 billion years old. So that's really neat. Mm -hmm. But but this really brings up another interesting connection. You know, uh, the Apollo astronauts left on the surface of the moon these reflecting instruments right. that allow us to fire lasers at and then get a laser beam back. And what mm -hmm. do we use those for? We use those to basically, because of the, the that we have highly accurate measurements, the distance between us and those retroreflectors that still exist on the moon, we learn a lot about uh, the interior structure of the moon as well and uh, the dynamics of the Earth-Moon system. So they turn out to be very valuable tools. We had a, a recent mission, the GRAIL mission, which went uh, and orbited the moon. It was two orbiting spacecraft that were very, very carefully choreographed in their orbit to give us very detailed information about the structure, the gravity structure of the moon. And coupled with the data from the retro reflectors, we were able to learn a lot more than we would have learned based on the GRAIL measurements alone. One of the most important measurements that they facilitate when you fire a laser from Earth, it bounces off those laser ref uh, reflectors and then comes back to Earth and we time it. And because we know the speed of light, we can get the distance to the moon. And now we've been doing that for 50 years. And we're finding out the moon is moving away from the Earth about an inch and a half a year. Mm -hmm. And so then that means if we go back in time, we have to move the moon closer. 
Yep. So the concept of, of impacts here on the Earth, throwing material up and having them land on the moon actually is easier uh, early on in the evolution of the Earth-Moon system. Mm -hmm. True. You know, 850 pounds of lunar material, you'd think we got everything. Okay, <laughs> so do we really need more samples from the moon? Well, you know, we were talking about that earlier on, that uh, the Apollo astronauts, they, the missions themselves landed in parts of the moon that were the safest and easiest to land. Well, those are the lunar mare, and the mare themselves are pretty flat regions, so they're relatively safe to land on, but they don't represent anything like the true surface of the moon. And so because of reasons of safety, um, we have a lot of the moon left to look at. And even when you look at the landing sites, you see they're not distributed very broadly on the moon itself. So there are many places left to go and many types of rocks that exist on the moon that we know are there based on orbital measurements from spacecraft that we haven't sampled yet. So there's a lot left to do and, um, and many, many questions about the moon that would be answered by collecting more samples. You know, uh, missions like Clementine and uh, Chandrayaan, which was from the uh, Indian uh, Space um, uh, Agency, uh, those, uh, those instruments on those spacecraft had um, the ability to look in different wavelengths. And one of the sets of wavelengths they looked at allowed us to tease out different minerals that are on the moon. And so mm -hmm. when you look at that data and they can color that data in different colors, you really see the moon as various... Uh, areas are completely different than other areas. Mm -hmm. So that's the areas we want to go to and bring back samples and understand what that material is and its origin, because likely that stuff was made somewhere else in our solar system and brought to the moon. So where would we like to go to the moon? Is it just the near side or are there different things that we're seeing on the far side? Uh, the near side and the far side are quite different. Uh, on the near side, you can see, if you look up at the night sky, you can see the Lunar Mariae, which were big volcanic uh, basaltic deposits on the near side of the moon. You don't see those on the far side. The far side is dominated by older, more silicic crust. A lot of plagioclase, which is a, a relatively light mineral, uh, makes up those rocks. So they represent the early crust of the moon. So there are, there, there's a lot of reasons for going to the far side. Also, the deepest basin on the moon, uh, which may penetrate all the way down and, and provide access to pieces of the mantle on the moon, as well as the lower crust of the moon, is on the far side, the South Pole Aiken Basin, which is a, an important target for us to go and collect materials from. So there are many reasons to look at different parts of the moon. I should add that if we go to the far side of the moon, we will no longer be the, uh, the first there. The Chinese uh, Chang'e 4 lander is already there and the U-22 rover is exploring new areas on the backside. Well, that's great. As more countries have the ability to launch probes, gather scientific data, it allows our scientists as a, a world community to be able to interact and, and exchange information about what we find. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the South Pole Aiken Basin, you know, this huge, deep impact hole that was not filled up with volcanic material. Mm -hmm. You know, when we look at the near side, we see the mare, and the mare is impacts, but then material, molten rock has filled that in, the volcanic material. Mm -hmm. 
And that differentiates a lot uh, between the near side and the far side. So what are some of the ideas on why we see that on the, on the, uh, the near side, the volcanic uh, Mari, and not so much on the far side? There are many questions about that and there are various debates about why that, why that came to pass. Some have to do with impacts on the moon. Some have to do with, uh, with just the, the fact that the moon has been tidally locked to the Earth. So we always see the same side of the moon. And so, so there's what, a gravitational pull that must be affecting the, the volcanic material. One would imagine so, yeah. So it's it's curious. We don't we haven't closed on that. We actually need more information, and a lot of that information will be derived from increasing uh, our collection of samples over a wider distribution. Well, you even pointed out the Grail mission, and one of the great things about the Grail mission, it was really able to understand the thickness of the lunar crust. Mm-hmm. And it's different from the near side uh, than the far side. Mm-hmm. Yes. So on the far side, uh, the crust is 30 kilometers thicker in general. Yes. So that, 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 that's, we have to figure out why or how that happens. That's true, yes. Um, you know, we, we also need to get a better quantification of the crustal thickness. And, and while the GRAIL mission was outstanding in providing high-resolution gravity data, which allowed us to figure out roughly the global distribution of crustal thickness, we really need uh, additional work to be able to measure the crustal thickness more accurately. And we'll get that when we send more seismometers back to the moon. So why are the seismometers important? I mean, didn't we do that with the Apollo missions, have seismometers and set them down on the surface? Wasn't that enough? Oh, well, they were only on the surface for seven years. We did actually get a lot of really interesting data. It's clear that the the lunar interior is more complicated than we ever imagined. And the lunar crust itself uh, is, is quite distinct from what we had imagined. Unfortunately, a decision was made about seven years after Apollo to turn those seismometers off. So we lost a lot more information. The seismic you know, information we get tells us about moonquakes, but it also tells us about impacts and tells us uh, a lot of interesting stories about the interior structure and dynamics of the moon. Interestingly enough, we have very deep moonquakes that are very poorly understood. Uh, coming from so deep in the moon, you wouldn't have imagined it was possible for the rocks to break down that deep. Also, the Apollo landings were not over a big geographic area. So if you're going to be able to figure out where these things are going on in the moon, you need to have a seismic network which is spread out over a larger area on the surface of the moon. Putting more seismometers on the moon and having a better distribution would provide us with some of the really key information that we're currently lacking. You know, other things in the samples that we brought back, some of the scientists are, are talking about a variety of materials. And one thing they talk about is creep. K-R-E-E-P, by the way. Yeah, K-R-E-E-P is uh, K for potassium. R-E-E is rare earth elements. P is phosphorus, and these are these are what the geochemists would call um, incompatible elements. And the material that makes up uh, the the creep terrain that we're seeing on the moon is uh, is also enriched in thorium. In fact, it was the thorium that first alerted us to the presence of these materials. And this is is material that was kind of the last gasp of liquid material in the interior of the moon that was erupted onto the surface. And it's rather unusual, and on the basis of this material, we learned a lot about the the final history of the uh, solidification 
rotation on formation of the crust of the moon. Uh, so the creep terrain is rather unique, but it is very, very important in understanding the history of bodies like the moon that had uh, an early magma ocean where the entire moon was liquid on this near surface region and liquid then slowly rock. cooled. Liquid yeah. rock, yeah. yeah. Liquid rock, wow. Yeah, in fact, uh, it's during those time periods that, you know, the, the, the water that was inherent in the, in the materials in the moon were being baked out. Right. You know, and so another result that came back from the Apollo astronauts is uh, the rocks seemed to be dry. Oh, yes. But that's changed recently. You know, we made measurements now of the rocks to finer detail because our instrumentation has gotten better. Yep. And we now are detecting small parts uh, of water in, in some of these rocks. But there are places that we've heard about now on the moon where there might be 100 or 200 million tons of water. Where is that? Oh, that's at the poles. Because it doesn't have an atmosphere, and because of its uh, orbital dynamics, there are places on the moon, the craters on the south and north poles, where the temperature in the bottom of those craters uh, is colder than anywhere else in the solar system. And, um, and within those regions, which never see sunlight, uh, the, the, any volatile deposits, particularly uh, water, is trapped and can build up over time. And so we believe, based on, uh, on measurements that are done from spacecraft and also from crashing uh, the Laddie spacecraft into one of the South Pole craters, we understand that there are some fairly major deposits of water ice uh, and maybe quite high concentrations that we can then use for other purposes, such as we can use it to uh, extract oxygen for humans to work on the moon. We can use it for breaking into, cracking into hydrogen plus oxygen for fuel for spacecraft to uh, move out further into the solar system. So these deposits are really important and make the moon not just uh, a place we want to go do science, but a place that can be a commercial venture to enable further solar system exploration. Yeah, that's really a fantastic idea. You know, the tough thing is it's in a permanently shadowed crater. So that mm -hmm. means we got to crawl into that and get and get in there to not only sample it and really understand what's there, but then to be able to figure out a way to be able to use it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of engineering that that really has to come into play. Now, these these regions, these permanently shadowed regions, of course, as you point out, are in the poles, mm -hmm. the North Pole and the South Pole, you know. And so there's other advantages for human exploration in particular to be able to go to those poles. And that's why uh, they're important. And that's because of the access of the sunlight. How does yes. that happen? Well, as I mentioned, the, the, the moon um, rotates on its axis as it goes around the Earth, essentially uh, the deep, deep craters are, do not see sunlight, but there are regions right on the rims of some of those craters that see permanent sunlight. And because of the orbital dynamics of the moon, uh, the, the temperature variation over time at the near the poles in those permanent sunlit regions is pretty benign. The region near the poles is actually a, a much better place to put astronauts on the surface of the moon because the day-night temperature variation there is pretty small and even though it's about minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in that region of the moon 
uh, the, the fact that it's reasonably constant is, is makes it much easier for them to be comfortable there. By contrast, if they were in a habitat at the equatorial regions, the day-night variation is about 470 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a real challenge to be able to keep them healthy in that kind of an environment. Yeah, and the temperature swing is so big that you have a completely different set of systems that you have to kick in. Exactly right, and you need a lot of power to keep them warm. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's right. Uh, you know, uh, when you talk to people, some people have the misconception that you know the far side of the moon is always dark. But as you point out, because the moon is rotating and it does so once a month and constantly has one face towards the Earth, there are times, of course, that the far side is completely lit. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we call that new moon. Yep. So. You have to think about the dynamics and and, uh, and then being able to go to the pole to be able to get access to sunlight all the time uh, to power your habs and do all kinds of stuff is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Well, those are really key places, not only for scientists to go to understand uh, the, the uh, chemical environment and how the water gets there, but there are also other neat places on the moon. Where else could we go? Well, there are a couple of places that we know about that would be really very useful to go to to bring back samples from. One of them, of course, is the South Pole Aiken Basin on the far side of the moon, where we have material that, uh, as I said, uh, that comes up from the uh, potentially from the lower crust or mantle. And so we could sample the mantle and see what the rocks or the minerals are like. And we can also see whether or not there's uh, there's water in those minerals. There's water dissolved within the minerals that is an important resource for us, but also tells us about the early history of the moon. And the South Pole Aiken Basin is arguably the oldest basin on the moon, but we don't know its age because we don't have rocks that we know definitively came from there. So bringing back some material from the melt sheet that was associated with that uh, that basin formation event would be tremendously valuable at enabling us to understand the earliest part of the cratering history of the, sol- the inner solar system, which would an- allow us to be much more uh, robust in our understanding of the early solar system. Well, you know, that impact region is enormous. Mm-hmm. We had a good day. The moon ran block for us and took, took that hit, mm-hmm. and it did, that, that hit didn't come to the Earth. Now, there's other places on the moon that are quite fascinating. One of these things that we talk about are skylights. Oh, yeah. What are those? The skylights are are pits on the surface, and you can see down into the pits. You can even see the layering of the lava flows. And we believe that that these pits, these um, uh, structures were formed due to collapsed crustal material over the top of a lava tube. And we, we see lava, plenty of lava tubes on Earth. We see them in Hawaii and other places. And, and it is reasonably conceivable that you would break down the material above and create a, a cavity. And those cavities could be really important for us as we think about sending humans back to the moon because they present an opportunity for putting astronauts below the surface somewhat, which is a more benign temperature environment, and also Habitats in the bottom of these structures would also allow them to be protected from solar radiation much more than putting them in a habitat on the surface of the moon. That sounds really neat. I mean, in those skylights, and they've found quite a few of them, uh, the skylights on the near side of the moon, if, if you can think about this, of course, 
standing right at the bottom of this collapsed lava tube where the hole is and looking out and seeing the earth and you see the earth all the time. Mm -hmm. So it also facilitates communication and makes it a really important and special place for consideration. The fact that, you know, that that it goes down, uh, you know, tens of meters and we have all kinds of stratigraphy that we could could look at scientifically Mm -hmm. could be quite important for us. So I'm, I'm real excited about uh, pulling all these ideas together and seeing how we're going to use them to continue to help uh, uh, humans explore our moon as we go forward. Well, you know, one of the things I always ask my guests when we, when we sit down and talk is about their gravity assist. You know, that, that thing that happened in their life in the past that really got them excited about the field and allowed them to become the scientists they are today. And and if you haven't noticed, Steve's got a great accent, and it's uh, it's a New Zealand accent. So, Steve, I'm really interested in your gravity assist. How did that happen? How did somebody from New Zealand get up here and working with NASA? Oh, well, I would say I'm a bit like the Galileo mission to Jupiter. I didn't have just one gravity assist. I had two. Uh, the first one of mine was back when Apollo 11 landed, because I... I can still remember very, very clearly sitting in a classroom and with a grainy black and white TV set and seeing the first steps of Neil Armstrong on the surface of the moon. It was fascinating to see, you know, as as people were moving around, it was clearly so different. And it was us stepping away from this environment we'd been so comfortable with for forever here on Earth. So yeah, that was one of the things that really impacted me. I also had another uh, gravity assist that came quite a number of years later. I was finishing up my, my master's degree in astrophysics uh, in, in University of Canterbury in, in New Zealand. And the, uh, the first images came back from Voyager 1 out at wow. Jupiter. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the images that sticks in my mind more probably than anything was the image of, of the limb of uh, Io and seeing this cloud, this volca- volcanic eruption, putting a cloud of, uh, of material up and, and thinking, wow, I always thought that the solar system was a kind of a static place. And here was this <laughs> crazy volcanic activity on a body way out in the cold realms of the solar system. So, you know, it really kind of made me think a lot that that we live in a, in a much more dynamic environment than I ever imagined. Yeah, we do. And uh, and so that was what what got me got me thinking about it. And so when I took over at the Lunar and Planetary Institute, for me, that was really coming back home. That was getting back and and looking out into the solar system and thinking, wow, we need to understand what's going on here much much more. And in the last 20 years or so, uh, wow, we've made such progress. Oh, it's really yeah, it's amazing. It's been amazing. It yep. really has. Yeah. So so you were the kid in the candy store at, at the Lunar and Planetary Institute. Oh, That's yes, I for was. sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really uh, enjoyed chatting with you this afternoon. Thanks so very much for joining me, Steve. Oh, it was a pleasure, Jim. Well, join me next time as we continue our exploration of the moon. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.